Have you ever wondered what might happen if a bunch of different ghosts from various eras were crammed into one small space and forced to all haunt that one single confined area? Requiem by Mark Leslie explores that concept. Silent screams bounce around my head like an impending storm, brewing into a force that will escape in a wild dance of chaos and be lost forever if I don't stop to write them down. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Prelude to a Scream, podcast fiction by Mark Leslie. I'm your host, Mark Leslie. Let's get right into the story. Requiem by Mark Leslie Sold! The auctioneer bellowed, bringing his gavel down hard, signaling an end to the seemingly endless flow of verbal diarrhea. To the man in the blue suit for three hundred thousand dollars! Peter Drebenair III clapped his hands together as his rounded belly hitched with a chuckle he could not contain. My very own haunted bureau, he thought, for practically a steal. Getting the bureau home would not be a problem, but he would have to tip the movers an exorbitant sum so they'd be extra careful with it. After all, Peter had been attempting to get his hands on this little bureau, known in certain circles as Victoria's Cabinet, for almost eight years. When he'd heard the museum was auctioning off most of the items in the Victorian wing, he'd been filled with delight. No, more than delight. Rapture. The tales told about Vicky's cabinet were legendary. This would push Peter's collection of haunted items over the top, making it by far the most envious collection in the world. He knew the security guards working at the museum would breathe a sigh of relief to know that the bureau was being removed from the premises. Peter could barely contain his excitement in getting the bureau home and seeing for himself if the legends were true. As he watched the burly men heft the heavy cabinet into the back of the moving van, Peter sighed. Though the cabinet was covered, he could still see in his mind the wide decorative drawers that jutted out from where the thick mirror sat in the fancy wood-carved frame. He couldn't wait to glance into that mirror and see what had frightened more than one security guard from ever entering the Victorian wing of the museum in the middle of the night. Let's go, boys, Peter grinned, rubbing his palms together. There's an extra five hundred dollars in it for each of you if we arrive in the next half hour. Peter smiled as he gazed in the mirror at the image of the young woman, who was maybe nineteen or twenty years old, with the same blue bow and matching dress that had been described to him over and over by terrified security personnel. After all those purchases, he thought, after all these years, I finally own a real ghost. He looked away from the mirror at his classically furnished living room. Okay, so one of the movers had injured himself trying to get the bureau up the staircase and into the special room where Peter kept all of his allegedly haunted items. And Peter was in such a good mood about owning his bureau that he was willing to let them come back another day to finish moving it upstairs. So he sent them all away without their tip. The $500 tip, he told them, is for when you come back after the weekend and finish the job. They offered to return within a few hours with another man, 
but Peter thought it would be best if he could have some time alone with his newly prized possession. Turning his eyes back to the mirror, Peter intently watched the image of the young woman in the mirror whom the guards had dubbed Vicky, after the era the bureau had come from. He noticed how she gazed wistfully into the mirror as she fiddled with a bow in her hair. Then, after several minutes, as if still somehow sad, but satisfied for the moment of how she looked, Vicky let go of the bow, shrugged, and turned from the mirror. Then her image disappeared. After another moment, Vicky reappeared in the mirror in the same pose she had first been in, struggling with the tiny blue bow. Peter watched, a chill running down his spine as she reenacted the exact same scene he had just witnessed. How beautiful she looked, this ghost he now owned, but also how sad and forlorn. He felt that he could understand just how she felt as she fixed herself in the mirror. For many times in his life, Peter too had gazed into his mirror, trying to adjust the way his suit fit the pudgy body he was cursed with, but ultimately realizing there was nothing much he could do about it. A tear strolled down Peter's cheek as Vicky stopped adjusting the bow, shrugged, turned, and disappeared again. Then the image replayed itself. Peter watched her all afternoon, and all afternoon he cried. It was beautiful. After the movers left for the second time, and Peter had tipped them generously, he climbed back up the stairs to the large, over-furnished room where Vicky's cabinet now sat. Having spent so much time with Vicky over the past few days, Peter had found himself drawn to her in many ways. Like a daughter, he'd always wanted to dress up and look pretty. Nicer than he'd ever been able to look. Like a lover he'd never once had and could only watch and yearn for like a friend which he had only fleeting memories of as a child. He watched Vicky's image and cried for the fact that his one companion in this world was a ghost from a time long past, and she could not see him. Vicky was trapped in her own exact ritual, destined to perform it again and again, never altering, never seeing what was going on around her, never realizing how she was being watched, how she was being loved. Yes, love. Peter had found himself falling in love with Vicky, in every sense of the word. And why not? They were two similar souls, each caught in their own rituals of which they could not escape. Why couldn't they be a couple? Sure, he would never be able to act upon his feelings for her, but at least he could dream and watch her. Watch her and care for her. Care for her and long for her. Long for her and lust after her. Watching her move, Peter had studied over and over the way her small breasts flowed beneath the fabric of her dress, imagining that she was disrobing rather than fixing her bow. He felt the stirring in his loins and the beginning of an erection. As Vicky shrugged and turned from the mirror, Peter brought his hand down to rub himself. The image played itself over and over again, and Peter unzipped his pants to free his aching erection watching Vicky's eyes, wishing that just once her gaze would meet his own. He pumped his erect penis inside his fist and imagined her slipping her dress off her shoulders. I love you, Vicky. Peter cried aloud, wishing she could hear him. Oh, how I love you! He closed his eyes as he orgasmed. When Peter opened his eyes and looked into the mirror, he caught the image of a figure standing by the door. Oh, my God! He yelled, aware of how his softening penis was exposed, sticky and dripping. 
It was probably one of the movers having returned. But, but how did he get back into the house past the alarm system? Stuffing himself back into his pants, Peter turned, trying to come up with some sort of explanation for what he was doing. But there was nobody at the door. What the hell? He turned, looked back in the mirror, and there stood the stranger beside the doorway, glaring. Whipping his head back and forth, Peter confirmed that he could only see the man in the mirror. What the hell was going on? Dressed in a navy blue button-up front and shiny black tights, the stranger stood at the doorway and stared at Vicky. His blue eyes twinkled and he grinned as he flipped his long, flowing black hair from his face. Just then, Vicky shrugged and turned from the mirror. Only this time, she didn't disappear. She stopped as if startled by the man. The man's lips moved as if he were saying something, and he advanced on the girl. No! Vicky! Run! Peter heard himself scream. He didn't need to know what the man was saying to understand his intent. The stranger grabbed Vicky by the shoulder and hauled her to the floor. One hand tearing off his own shirt, the man roughly mashed Vicky's left breast. Seeing her pretty lips quivering, Peter guessed that Vicky was crying or screaming or some combination of the two. In one solid quick gesture, the man tore open the front of Vicky's pretty dress. Her small breasts hitched as she cried soundlessly. The stranger ran a hand along her cheek, down her neck, and over her chest, flicking a finger across a nipple. Then he leaned down and covered one of the creamy white mounds with his mouth. Viciously, the man bit down, drying blood. Falling to his knees, Peter screamed. Something, a bad feeling, woke Peter suddenly. He sat up in bed. He listened, but there was nothing. Just the same, Peter thought that he should check it out. After all, he didn't want to find that a burglar had broken in and discovered his secret stash of highly valuable haunted artifacts. As he threw his housecoat on and reached into his dresser drawer to pull out the 9mm pistol which he always kept loaded, Peter again regretted not hiring any full-time help around the mansion. He'd gotten rid of the maid, butler, and cook as live-in servants after just three days of service. Though they were good people, Peter relished his privacy. He chose instead to call them in during the day to clean and cook and tend to his needs. But that decision had also left him alone every night, and potentially vulnerable. Well, not really. There was the state-of-the-art security system which he had installed that kept even the tiniest of intruders from sneaking onto the mansion grounds. It had certainly cost him plenty, but it was worth it for the peace of mind it brought. What peace of mind, he thought, as he exited the bedroom and walked down the hall, the pistol pointing his way. Despite the illegal security system with its under-the-table assurance that nobody could have possibly made it even close to the mansion alive, Peter was still nervous. While the programs which kept the house under tight surveillance were foolproof, they were still part of a newly designed computer system, and computer systems could sometimes malfunction. Peter couldn't be too careful. He was a wealthy man, and though he considered himself a decent person, a wealthy man could have plenty of enemies he didn't even know about. People who hated and scorned him, not because he had done anything to them, but merely because he was filthy rich, and they were not. When he arrived at the den, he reached in and flicked on the light switch. The room proved to be empty, except for a large wall unit which housed half a dozen monitors and a large computer terminal. Walking over to the security system, Peter surveyed it. None of the security cameras inside or out revealed any movement. The system was active to the second highest level, so it was impossible to even get onto the mansion grounds without being seriously hurt or, more probably, killed. But what if someone was inside already? 
By pressing his thumb into the fingerprint scanner and simultaneously flicking a switch, Peter engaged the highest level of the system, the one which would not allow anyone to even leave the property. That way, if anyone somehow had gotten past the security system due to a flicker or hiccup in the system's program, they would be stopped on their way out. Permanently. Assured, Peter left the security den and walked, a little more casually, to the closed door of the special room and listened. Silence. Remembering the scene he had witnessed that afternoon, Peter was almost hesitant to peer into the room. He didn't think he could bear to see anything more happen to the girl he had fallen in love with. It was too terrible a thing to watch, helplessly, unable to do anything while she screamed soundlessly for mercy. Peter paused and took a deep breath, trying to erase the image from his mind. He opened the door and scanned the room. Except for the haunted objects, the table and chair set, the phonograph, the old wooden rocking chair, the Gaelic sword hanging on the wall, the empty cedar bookshelf, the Russian army boots, the seascape painting, the charred teddy bear, the purple scarf, the gold-rimmed spectacles, the daybed, and the newly acquired bureau. The room was empty. A flash of activity from the mirror caught Peter's eye. Remembering the startling vision of the strange man attacking and raping poor Vicky, Peter forced himself to walk over to the bureau. He promised himself that this time he would not run screaming like a banshee if he saw the same horrific scene. He got close enough to the mirror to peer in. The reflection revealed that the seemingly empty room was alive with activity. At least a dozen people of all shapes, sizes, ages, and cultures were either moving around the room or engaging in some sort of activity with one another. In the corner by the table and chairs, an old gentleman wearing what looked like a military-issue suit sat across from a younger man who looked like an extra out of an early 20s movie. They appeared to be partaking in a conversation which required much effort on their part. Beside them on the rocking chair sat an elderly woman wrapped in a shawl, staring fixedly at her hands and rocking to a constant beat. Next to the old woman, a young man in a Scottish kilt stood in place playing a soundless set of bagpipes. A few feet past the Scot, a young blonde woman with gold-rimmed spectacles sat with a knife, waving it a few inches above her wrist, as if trying to work up the courage to press the blade into her flesh. Standing above the blonde woman was the same dark-maned man who had attacked and raped poor Vicky. Sweat gleamed off his bare muscular chest as he leered down at the woman while fastening his belt. Taking another look at the woman, Peter noticed that her clothes hung on her strangely, as if torn and loose. He realized that this beast of a man must have just finished having his way with her, just like he'd had with Vicky. Vicky. Suddenly worried because he hadn't seen her, Peter searched the rest of the room. The fascination of seeing so many ghosts had shocked him into momentarily forgetting about the object of his recent love. Beyond the rapist and his latest victim, Peter spied Vicky sitting in a corner of the room. She was involved in some type of conversation with a young boy who clutched at a teddy bear and didn't seem to be responding to her at all. Poor Vicky, Peter thought, watching her try to communicate with the boy. Then, unable to watch her any longer, because seeing her torn blue dress brought back memories of the horror he'd witnessed that afternoon, he continued scanning the other ghosts. All of these people involved in so many different things. But no noise. That, more than anything, was what chilled Peter. Peter awoke a few hours later to a scream. He clutched the 9mm to his chest and quickly bolted out of bed. 
Creeping down the hallway, he first checked to make sure the security system was still at its highest level, and then snuck back down to the haunted room. From behind the closed door, he heard shuffling noises. This is it, Peter whispered, checking to make sure the safety was released on the gun. Somebody had somehow bypassed the security system when it was after his possessions. Maybe they can get past a glitch in the computer system, Peter thought, but let's see them get past my gun. Bracing himself against the wall across from the door, Peter prepared to kick the door open, counting in his head. One, two. A giggle from the other side of the door made him pause. He listened. There was more shuffling. Aiming the gun at the closed door, he considered simply shooting through the wood. Perhaps it was too risky to chance getting the door open. He gripped the pistol tightly and squeezed one eye shot, aiming dead center of the door. Another giggle. More shuffling. Then a deep, hearty voice. Stop that fucking noise! An unintelligible response. I said stop that fucking noise! Eat me! replied a young feminine voice. Would the both of you just be quiet? The voice of an older gentleman. What the hell was going on in there? He listened, but there was only one more quiet muffled voice and shuffling. Peter looked back and forth down the hallway, then lowered the gun to his side and stepped forward. A scream cut through the silence. A gun went off. Peter dove for cover up against where the floor met the wall and fired a shot down the hallway when he realized that the gunshot he'd heard was from his own gun. The scream had startled him enough to squeeze the trigger. Lying on the floor in the empty hallway and bringing the gun up to train it on the doorway, Peter waited a moment. When all he heard was more shuffling and the murmur of voices from behind the door, seemingly unfettered by the gunshots, he got to his feet, carefully turned the doorknob and pushed the door open. As before, the room was empty, except for the objects and, of course, when he looked in the mirror, the ghosts. He walked into the room, amazed. A collection of muffled voices could be heard coming from all corners of the room as he moved. Getting closer to the mirror, Peter looked inside and saw the animated figures moving about the room. But this time, when he saw their feet hit the floor, he could make out the sound of footsteps. This time, when their lips moved, he could hear muffled speech. He stood and listened. Every once in a while, one of the voices or noises punched through the air with full force and clarity. The scream came loud again, this time with the unmistakable smack of flesh hitting flesh. Peter spied the room until he found the rapist hunched on the bed over Vicky, his lean, muscular arms pinning her down to the mattress, his naked body heavy upon hers. Peter screamed as the beast plunged into her. Vicky's scream met Peter's, and together their screams mingled and danced in the air to the savage rhythm of the large man's violation. Get your lazy ass out of my way! A foreign tongue responded, and there was no mistaking the colorful words which had been chosen, no matter that Peter didn't understand the language. That's my corner! You had it all day. Up yours. Dolly, Dolly, my favorite Dolly. You cheater, put that piece back. Cheater! With one quick pull of the knife, I'll end the pain forever. The voices came so loud through the night and down the hall to Peter's room that he couldn't shut them out. Even pressing his hands to his ears, the maddening, never-ending torrent of voices rattled on and on. No matter where he went in the house, he couldn't escape the sounds of the ghosts. And that, worse than seeing them, was driving him crazy. Upon fleeing the roomful of ghosts, Peter had run to the security system, hoping to shut it down and run off into the night. But what he found there left him with a cold feeling in the pit of his stomach. The shot he had fired down the hallway had entered the security mainframe.
Whatever else the bullet had done, it had rendered the fingerprint scanner useless so that Peter could not override the system from continuing to run at the highest level, making it impossible for Peter to leave his mansion. Since his phone lines were patched through the security system to ensure privacy from phone tapping, hackers, and to monitor all incoming calls, Peter's phone was also inoperable at the highest level without being able to scan his thumbprint. And a quick search through the house for his cellular phone was a waste of time when Peter remembered he had left it in the car in the garage, which was now off-limits. Vicky's scream tore at his heart yet again. Fixing his top lip tight against his bottom one, Peter lifted the whiskey glass and looked at it before taking the last swallow. The incessant arguing and screaming and going-and-on of the ghosts became too much for Peter to handle. The only saving grace of all the intermingled voices was the fact that they helped to blend out Vicky's screams and cries. But it was taxing. So taxing that Peter had spent the last twenty hours either drinking or passed out. Remaining in a drunken stupor was the only way he could handle the noise, the constant noise. But with this, his last drop of whiskey finished. Peter knew that he now had no choice. He raised the empty bottle like a club and stumbled into the hallway and up the stairs. Tripping, he fell down, barely feeling the edge of the wooden steps dig into his forehead as he landed. He laid there listening to the voices. As they sank into his mind, he found the strength and conviction to move again. He got up, clumsily climbing the rest of the stairs and heading toward the haunted room. Raising his bottle overhead again, he walked into the room and stood looking at the mirror. His voice was raw from hours of shouting and screaming at the ghosts. But all his screaming had done no good. The ghosts, after all, were not aware of him or of the world that Peter existed in. They merely lived in their own world, a world that Peter had become a witness to. Thanks to that goddamn mirror. He'd had enough time to figure it all out. It had never occurred to him before, but now in a drunken haze it all made sense. For whatever reason, the mirror was like a window into the world beyond the living. That, in itself, was quite a discovery. But Peter had unwillingly discovered something else about ghosts. Ghosts were apparently accustomed to having their own space. What Peter had done by collecting haunted objects was force many different ghosts to share the same haunt. Trapped together for all of eternity, of course they would bicker and fight. And if the bickering were not enough, there was poor Vicky. What had Peter done to her, thrusting her into the same space as that brutal rapist? Well, maybe he couldn't take back what had been done to her, but at least he could prevent himself from seeing and hearing it twenty-four hours a day. That goddamned mirror! With the bottle still raised overhead, he let out a hoarse battle cry and ran at the mirror. Peter awoke to screaming and rolled over. Strangely, he wasn't in his bed. There was a hard floor beneath him and something was pressing into his throat. It was painful and he couldn't breathe, but somehow it didn't stop him from being able to move. He pressed himself up to his hands and knees and saw that he was beside Vicky's cabinet. Then he remembered where he was when he blacked out. He'd been advancing on the mirror with a bottle raised when he'd stumbled forward. The last thing he could remember, his head had connected with the surface of the mirror. Peter looked down at himself at the huge shard of glass sticking out of his throat. He pulled it out with a sickening slurp and tossed it to the floor. What the hell? Hey you, newcomer, get the hell out of my way! 
Peter looked up at the bare-chested, dark-haired man. The rapist. He was staring right at him. He could see Peter. But not only him, all the other ghosts were there, looking at Peter. They could all see him. Can you hear me, you stupid ass? The man said. Here are the rules. Stay out of my way and I won't beat the crap out of you for fun. The man moved forward and delivered a roundhouse kick that connected with Peter's head and sent him sprawling across the floor. Reeling from the blow, Peter realized what had happened. He'd accidentally killed himself and become a ghost in his own haunted room. He stood, dusted himself off, and looked down at the piece of glass that had been lodged in his throat. The glass must have been from Vicky's cabinet. Did this mean he was now haunting the bureau with Vicky? Peter then looked up at the man who was advancing on the helpless young woman Peter had come to know as Vicky. Vicky! For the first time, Peter would now be able to do something to help her. Glancing once again at the shard of glass, then again at the dark-haired man, Peter smiled. Oh, have I got a bone to pick with you. And that was Requiem uh, by Mark Leslie. It was first published in the magazine Darkness Within, number two, which came out in October of 1999. Requiem was um, inspired by true ghost stories that some bookseller colleagues of mine and I were talking about between serving customers and shelving books. This is back at uh, Coles at Saint Laurent Shopping Center uh, in Ottawa. We began talking about haunted places, and one of my colleagues recounted a tale of a haunted mirrored uh, bureau or cabinet. Apparently strange things happened when the antique was moved into someone's home, and then one family member wouldn't return to the room the bureau was in, because when she looked in the mirror she'd seen the reflection of this little girl dressed in Victorian clothes looking back at her. The tale, while giving me chills, also called further concepts and questions to mind. The, the first thought that entered my mind was that objects, not just houses, could be haunted, and I like that. The second was the idea of a haunted mirror showing the image of the ghost haunting into it, as if the mirror itself could help you look into the other world. So what if that mirror could also reveal other ghosts? And what if those ghosts had all been thrust together by a collector who collected haunted artifacts? I began drafting up what I imagined would be a man who would do such a thing. He was elite, French, rich, and eclectic. He was a loner who lived off of his parents' wealth in a large mansion by himself. He was paranoid about the outside world and yet fascinated by the supernatural. Suddenly, I'd found an easy way to isolate my main character, a malfunctioning black market security system, and it kind of tied in with his loner uh, attitude and his wealth. After all, the, the common problem that I have as a reader with many ghost stories is not having a clear answer as to why the hell the character doesn't just leave when signs of the first ghost show up. I mean, myself, I'd be running like crazy the minute there's anything slightly out of the ordinary. Of course, I'm afraid of my own shadow. Um, well, in this case, I know that Peter wanted to see the ghosts, but I still had to be able to explain why, after he's frustrated with the endless quarreling of the ghosts, why he didn't just get up and leave. His aversion to the outside world might be enough, but it didn't satisfy me, not when that kind of supernatural thing was going on and driving him nuts. 
So I considered developing his aversion to people in the outside world into a full-blown phobia, but then I had to think about why would he be at the auction, and I'd have to rewrite that whole thing. Maybe there was someone who did, did the auctioning for him, but it just didn't didn't ring well for me. So I came up with the idea of the illegally developed security system, and that seemed to fit the bill, at least to keep him trapped in the house with the ghost. So, a few years later, and shortly after the tale was published, uh, I went out to dinner with a friend, uh, Peter Hallis, and I'd met Peter in one of the local science fiction circles. Peter is a voracious reader, and a collector of Canadian speculative works. I knew he must be extremely well-read, because he had actually heard of me. It's not as if my writing is everywhere and easy to find. Most of my stories at that point had all appeared in small um, small press U.S. magazines that couldn't be found on magazine stands in Canada. They could only be found in specialty shops or ordered directly from the publisher. And apart from being well-read and thus having a discerning nature about quality writing and stories, Peter is difficult to impress. That's what I love about him. He's known for his extremely frank and honest nature, and again, I respect him for that. Peter's not the kind of guy who's going to say something um, just to make you feel good. He's not going to say something that I wrote was good or enjoyable if he didn't actually believe it. He doesn't waste time trying to pad a writer's ego. Um, and again, I find it honestly refreshing, and I enjoy that about him. Therefore, if Peter does offer praise, you know it's not being given lightly, and it, therefore it actually has much more meaning. I get enough of the, oh, it was nice, uh, about my writing, and I'd much rather have an in-depth conversation about why something in the writing didn't work, and why it sucked, or how it failed the reader in some way. I'd rather have that than any hollow praise. Now, don't get me wrong, I'd love to have an in-depth, here's what I loved and found fascinating about your writing. I mean, that's a, that's a great thing to have, but one has to be realistic while being hopeful. So during our discussion, Peter did praise my ability to tell a story, my pace, my timing, and in general, uh, in general, my readable style. In a nutshell, he said, I was a good storyteller, but I wasn't a great writer. He illustrated his point by showing me where my writing got lazy, where I didn't pick the best possible way of describing something, or if I'd simply cheated by filling scenes with stereotypical or ill-researched details. Again, I have to come back and express that, while hearing such frankness isn't always entirely pleasant, I was delighted, absolutely delighted, that Peter was willing to take the time to walk through the story with me. And I was ecstatic that he cared enough to peel down to the really stinky part of the onion, all for the benefit of helping me become a better writer. Again, feels like I'm, I'm complaining about uh, the criticism, but I absolutely adore the fact that he did this for me. I absolutely uh, adore the fact that he took the time to care enough to tell me where it sucked, to tell me where I could improve as a writer. That's more valuable than any praise. So one of the first issues that Peter pointed out to me was the way I described the auctioneer. I'd never been to a, a gentleman's auction and seen the way that such an event was carried out. Instead, I inserted the stereotypical country auctioneer often seen in television and movies. Peter had me cornered. Yes, I had taken a shortcut in research and thus began the story with a blatant error. When 
re-editing the tale for um, my collection One Hand Screaming, I considered changing that detail, but I ended up keeping it, and I'll call it poetic license as the reason why I kept it. Although I was technically incorrect, I liked the way I had described the auctioneer's spiel as verbal diarrhea, and, and since it was such a short scene, I wondered if the average reader wouldn't even catch that detail, so I left it in. Maybe it's my impression of our media-based society and the easy lies that television and movies immerse us in that we accept unquestioningly, but I thought I'd try to get away with it again. Besides, there's also the thought that I should be as true to the original published work as possible. So while I did re-edit some of the sloppy wording and original phrase choices that I'd used in the original version of the story that had been published in uh, Darkness Within, I did purposely leave a few of the gaps Peter had pointed out in there for similar reasons that I justified to myself. Peter, I hope you understand. In any case, I'm sure we're going to have a fruitful and inter interesting discussion about it one day, and, and I know that we actually have. Um, it's interesting when you look at uh, a tale like uh, Requiem and you look at uh, having had it published and then reprinting it and then working on it again and it's really tempting for a writer to want to go back and as a more mature writer who's got more experience obviously it's more than 10 years since um, since it was first published I'm really tempted even for this audio version to make some changes to the tale and yes admittedly while I was reading from the the last printed version of this 2004 I did make some minor tweaks but that sometimes isn't just that I would have changed it in the story but it just sounds better in the audio version well, when you insert a word or drop another but I find that interesting uh, as a writer you can continue to improve upon your writing you can continue to be better but at what point do you stop and say enough's enough this was obviously um, chosen by an editor to be published somewhere obviously there was enough good about it that it was worth being in print let's move on yes I could do I could do the story better today yes I could improve uh, several number of things in it but for God's sakes let's just move on and so as a writer I'm just gonna keep moving on I'm gonna enjoy the fact that I had a good time with this story I'm gonna enjoy the fact that people have enjoyed this story as well and I'm gonna enjoy the fact that I'm gonna to continue to go on and write something new and something fresh and yes in ten years from now I'm gonna look back on it and think oh boy I could have improved this that and the other thing but that's an endless cycle a writer can get trapped in and I don't want to be caught in erratic cycles oops I'm alluding to the story that I posted in episode 15 of prelude to a scream in any case, I'm Mark Leslie. This was Prelude to a Scream, episode 17. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback, comments, questions, etc., I'd love to hear from you. You can email me, mark at marklesley.ca. The feed for this podcast originates at preludetoascream.blogspot.com. You can check me out there or on my regular blog, marklesley.blogspot.com. My website is marklesley.ca. Again, thanks for listening. We'll see you in episode 18. You've been listening to Prelude to a Scream, podcast fiction by Mark Leslie. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons 2.0 non-commercial, no derivatives license, which basically means feel free to copy it as many times as you want and give it to as many thousands of people you can. Music has been provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day.